Okay, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. I'll begin reading with verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now stop reading at that point. We start this evening with verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Uh, Paul makes it clear in other places in Scripture, a number of other places, that the norm in the early Christian churches was for the one who ministered the word to be paid for ministering the word. Uh, just one example uh, out of the many, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll begin with verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things? As a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is, is it a great thing if we reap your material things. So that's just one example laying down the principle that those who minister the word should be paid. Now Paul was an exception to this. He made himself an exception to it. Uh, he said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He says, I'm under an obligation to preach the gospel. And uh, he says, the only reward I get is if I make it without pay. The question really in regard to this verse is, uh, is why is it here? <laughs> why does Paul say this at this point? How does it fit in the context? He immediately takes up this with this passage about do not be, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Uh, why is he saying this? Well, uh, commentators generally are pretty, uh, puzzled over this, and they don't give, uh, uh, at least not many of them, give uh, very definite answers. 
one one suggestion is that perhaps it's inserted to preclude misunderstanding of what he said in verse 5, for each one shall bear his own burden, which is said in another connection altogether. Uh, or it may be that the original Orthodox teachers at Galatia had been neglected in favor of the false teachers that Paul has been warning against. And that really does kind of fit the whole context of Galatians. If we think about it, these false teachers were really being uh, honored in Galatia. And you can just imagine that the dull, old, uh, ordinary, orthodox teachers were being neglected in favor of this new, uh, more glamorous uh, teaching that they were receiving. So perhaps it is the lavishing of attention and wealth on false teachers while rejecting the local teachers of the truth that not only is responsible for verse 6, but also uh, provokes the statements in verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, reaping corruption, I don't think there's any doubt, but what he's speaking about is death and eternal death. Uh, if you go back and look uh, at chapter 5, he gives this list of the works of the flesh, and he ends it up saying those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here again, we have to ask, what is the context, and how do we view this 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 passage in the context. If you think about the whole teaching of the book of Galatians, pursuing righteousness by law works is certainly sowing to the flesh, isn't it? Look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed... And we know from the context, you recall when we talked about this, that he's talking about the law. The law had was that to which we died. And he said, if I build again, re reconstruct the law, I make myself a transgressor. Because if you resurrect the law and put it out there, it's for sure that fallen human flesh, even Christian human flesh, is going to fall afoul of the law. Look at chapter 3, uh, verse 21, the latter part of verse 21. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded all or confined all under sin. The scripture really being the law. <laughs> The law produces sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. What is that bondage under the elements of the world? It's, it has to do with all of the law works and the ceremonies and so forth 
of the law. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Look at verse 21 of the same chapter. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. But, in contrast, sowing to the Spirit is antithetical to being under the law. Look at 5.18. But you are, you are led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. And look back at chapter 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And then verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then chapter 4 uh, verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Even so it is now. And then chapter 5, verse 4, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So I think that this, this passage, sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the Spirit, uh, is, has this whole structure of Galatians in view. Not only are we born again of the Spirit through faith alone, but having been given this newness of life in the Spirit, we look to the Spirit and His fruit in our life for practical righteousness. We don't look to the law for practical righteousness. We don't uh, look to the law uh, as an external moral code to produce in us obedience to the law. We look to the Holy Spirit to produce in us righteousness that comes from the heart and from the Spirit. I believe that this is what is in view here. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought about what we have considered a lot of times, how the church today, in so many ways, is being led once again into uh, various types of law works and away from the gospel. And I thought about the great example of this in the past, which was the medieval Roman Catholic Church. 
And I came upon two passages of Scripture that I'd like to uh, read to you that have to do with this. Uh, the first one is a short passage by a noted historian. In fact, he is a McLean Professor of Ancient and Modern History at Harvard University, Stephen Osmond. He says, There is a pervasive misconception that late medieval religion had become lax and the medieval church tolerant to a fault of human weakness, a conclusion often drawn in contrast to Protestantism. Only the religiously indifferent, unbelieving, unbelieving and or reclusive could have found them to be such. When religiously earnest people sought forgiveness for immoral behavior, they encountered a very demanding penitential system, one that provided only temporary relief, and even that with conditions attached and the threat of purgatorial suffering for unrepented sins. Full, unconditional forgiveness of sin and assurance of salvation were utterly foreign concepts to medieval theology and religious practice. Effective removal of religious guilt and anxiety this side of eternity would have meant the end of medieval religious institutions and advocates of this worldly perfection were roundly condemned during the Middle Ages. Now, in that last phrase, he gives away the fact that he's not really a believing uh, Christian who understands theology, but, but in general, you get the point. He's, uh, he's pretty well pegged uh, medieval uh, religion, medieval Catholic religion. Now, the other passage I'd like to read is, is longer, uh, but better. And it is a passage uh, from Merle Daubigny uh, and his history of the Reformation in the 16th century. And uh, in chapter 2, which is a three-volume history, it's real long, but in chapter 2, he gives a little history, a little review of how we led up to the time of the, Ref of the Reformation. He says, Salvation by grace was the second characteristic which essentially distinguished the religion of God from all human systems. Now, I might just stop and ask the first uh, characteristic that he has cited earlier is what he calls the holy and primitive equality of souls before God. And what he's talking about is that that initial uh, first century holy and primitive equality of souls before God had been eradicated by the Roman church because it had set up the clergy-laity distinction. Very, very hard distinction. So he says, salvation by grace was the second characteristic which essentially distinguished the religion of God from all human systems. What had now become of it? Had the church preserved as a precious deposit this great and primordial thought? Let us trace its history. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, of Asia, of Greece, and of Rome in the time of the first emperors heard these glad tidings. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. At this proclamation of peace, at this joyful news, at this word of power, many guilty souls believed, 
and were drawn to him who is the source of peace and numerous Christian churches were formed in the midst of the degenerate nations of that age. But a great mistake was soon made as to the nature of this saving faith. Faith, according to St. Paul, is the means by which the whole being of the believer is understanding heart and will enter into possession of the salvation purchased before him by the incarnation and death of the Son of God. Jesus Christ is apprehended by faith and from that hour becomes all things to man and in man. He communicates a divine life to our human nature and man thus renewed and freed from the chains of sin and self feels new affections and performs new works. Faith, says the theologian, in order to express his ideas, is the subjective appropriation of the objective work of Christ. If faith be not an appropriation of salvation, it is nothing. All the Christian economy is thrown into confusion. The fountains of the new life are sealed and Christianity is overturned from its foundations. And this is what did happen. This practical view of faith was gradually forgotten. Soon it became what it still is to many persons, a simple act of the understanding, a mere submission to a superior authority. From this first error, there necessarily proceeded a second. Faith being thus stripped of its practical character, it was impossible to say that it alone had power to save. As works no longer were its fruits, they were of necessity placed side by side with it. And the doctrine that man is justified by faith and by works prevailed in the church. In place of that, Christian unity in place of that Christian unity which comprises in a single principle justification and works, grace and the law, doctrine and duty, succeeded that melancholy duality which regards religion and morality as two entirely distinct things, that fatal error which by separating things that cannot live unless united, and by putting the soul on one side and the body on the other, is the cause of spiritual death. The words of the apostle re-echoing across the interval of ages are, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Another great error contributed still further to unsettle the doctrine of grace. This was Pelagianism. Pelagius asserted that human nature is not fallen, that there is no hereditary corruption, and that man, having received the power to do good, has only to will in order to perform. If good works consist only in external acts, Pelagius is right. But if we look to the motives whence these out, outward acts proceed, we find everywhere in man's nature selfishness, forgetfulness of God, pollution, and impotency. The Pelagian doctrine, expelled by Augustine from the church when it had presented itself bodily, insinuated itself as semi-Pelagianism and under the mask of the Augustine forms of expression. This error spread with astonishing rapidity throughout Christendom. The danger of the doctrine was particularly manifested in this, that by placing goodness without and not within the heart, it set a great value on external actions, legal observances, and penitential works. The more these practices were observed, the more righteous man became. By them heaven was gained, and soon the extravagant idea prevailed that there are men who have advanced in holiness beyond what was required of them. Whilst Pelagianism corrupted the Christian doctrine, it strengthened the hierarchy. The hand that lowered grace exalted the church. For grace is God, the church is man. 
The more we feel the truth that all men are guilty before God, the more also we shall cling to Christ as the only source of grace. How could we then place the church in the same rank with Christ, since it is but an assembly of all those who are found in the same wretched state by nature? But so soon as we attribute to man a peculiar holiness, a personal merit, everything is changed. The clergy and the monks are looked upon as the most natural channels through which to receive the grace of God. This was what happened often under the times of Pelagius. Happened often after the times of Pelagius. Salvation, taken from the hands of God, fell into those of the priests who set themselves in the place of our Lord. Souls thirsting for pardon were no more to look to heaven but to the church and above all to its pretended head. To these blinded souls the Roman pontiff was God, hence the greatness of the popes, hence unutterable abuses. The evil spread still further. When Pelagianism laid down the doctrine that man could attain a state of perfect sanctification, it affirmed also that the merits of saints and martyrs might be applied to the church. A peculiar power was attributed to their intercession. Prayers were made to them. Their aid was invoked in all the sorrows of life, and a real idolatry thus supplanted the adoration of the living and true God. At the same time, Pelagianism multiplied rites and ceremonies, man imagining that he could and that he ought by good works to render himself deserving of grace, saw no fitter means of meriting it than acts of external worship. The ceremonial law became infinitely complicated and was soon put on a level, to say the least, with the moral law. Thus were the consciences of Christians burdened anew with a yoke that had been declared insupportable in the times of the apostles. But it was especially by the system of penance, which flowed immediately from Pelagianism, that Christianity was perverted. At first, penance had consisted in certain public expressions of repentance required by the church from those who had been excluded on account of scandals and who desired to be received again into its bosom. By degrees, penance was extended to every sin, even to the most secret, and was considered as a sort of punishment to which it was necessary to submit in order to obtain the forgiveness of God through the priest's absolution. Ecclesiastical penance was thus confounded with Christian repentance, without which there can be neither justification nor sanctification. Instead of looking to Christ for pardon through faith alone, it was sought for principally in the church through penitential works. Great importance was soon attached to external marks of repentance, to tears, fasting, mortification of the flesh, and the inward regeneration of the heart, which alone constitutes a real conversion, was forgotten. As confession and penance are easier than the extirpation of sin and the abandonment of vice, Many ceased contending against the lusts of the flesh and preferred gratifying them at the expense of a few mortifications. The penitential works thus substituted for the salvation of God were multiplied in the church from Tertullian down to the 13th century. Men were required to fast, to go barefoot, to wear no linen, to quit their homes in their native land for distant countries, or to renounce the world and embrace a monastic life. In the 11th century, voluntary flagellations were superadded to these practices. Somewhat later, they became quite a mania in Italy, which was then in a very disturbed state. 
nobles and peasants, old and young, even children of five years of age whose only covering was a cloth tied around the middle, went in pairs by hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands through the towns and villages, visiting the churches in the depth of winter. Armed with scourges, they flogged each other without pity, and the streets resounded with cries and groans that drew tears from all who heard them. Still, <clears throat> long before the disease had reached such a height, the priest-ridden world had sighed for deliverance. The priests themselves had found out that if they did not apply a remedy, their usurped power would slip from their hands. They accordingly invented that system of barter celebrated under the title of indulgences. They said to their penitents, you cannot accomplish the tasks imposed on you. Well, we, the priests of God and your pastors, will take this heavy burden upon ourselves for a seven weeks fast. And said Reginio, abbot of Prom, you shall pay 20 pence if you are rich, 10 if less wealthy, and 3 pence if you are poor, and so on for other matters. Courageous men raised their voices against this traffic, but in vain. The Pope soon discovered what advantages could be derived from these indulgences. Alexander Hales, the irrefragable doctor, invented in the 13th century a doctrine well calculated to secure these vast revenues to the papacy. A bull of Clement VII declared it an article of faith. Jesus Christ, it was said, had done much more than was necessary to reconcile God to man. One single drop of his blood would have been sufficient but he shed it copiously in order to form a treasure for his church that eternity can never exhaust. The supererogatory merits of the saints, the reward of the good works they had done beyond their obligation, have still further augmented this treasure. Its keeping and management were confided to Christ's vicar upon earth. He applies to each sinner for the sins committed after baptism, these merits of Jesus Christ and of the saints according to the measure and the quantity of his sins require. Who would venture to attack a custom of such holy origin? This inconceivable traffic was soon extended and complicated. The philosophers of Alexandria had spoken of a fire in which men were to be purified. Many ancient doctors had adopted this notion, and Rome declared this philosophical opinion a tenet of the church. The Pope, by a bull, annexed purgatory to his domain. In that place, he declared, men would have to expiate the sins that could not be expiated here on earth, but that indulgences would liberate their souls from that intermediate state in which their sins would detain them. Thomas Aquinas set forth this doctrine in his famous Summa Theologica. No means was spared to fill the mind with terror. The priests depicted in horrible colors the torments inflicted by this purifying fire on all who became its prey. In many Roman Catholic countries, we may still see paintings exhibited in the churches and public places wherein poor souls from the midst of glowing flames invoke with anguish some alleviation of their pain. Who could refuse the ransom which, falling into the treasury of Rome, would redeem the soul from such torments? Somewhat later, in order to reduce this traffic to a system, they invented, probably under John the Twenty-Second the celebrated and scandalous tariff of indulgences which has gone through more than 40 editions, the least delicate ears would be offended by an enumeration of all the horrors it contains. Incest, if not detected, 
was to cost five groats and six if it was known. There was a stated price for murder, infanticide, adultery, perjury, burglary, etc. Oh, disgrace of Rome, exclaims Claude Dispense, a Roman divine. And we may add, oh, disgrace of human nature, for we can utter no reproach against Rome that does not recall on man himself. Rome is human nature exalted in some of its worst propensities. We say this, that we may speak the truth. We say it also, that we may be just. Boniface VIII, the most daring and ambitious pontiff after Gregory VII, was enabled to effect still more than his predecessors. In the year 1300, he published a bull in which he declared to the church that every hundred years, all who made a pilgrimage to Rome should receive a plenary indulgence. From all parts, from Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, France, Spain, Germany, and Hungary, people flocked in crowds. Old men of 60 and 70 undertook the journey. And in one month, 200,000 pilgrims visited Rome. All these strangers brought rich offerings, and the Pope and the Romans saw their coffers replenished. Roman avarice soon fixed each jubilee at 50 years, and then at 33, and lastly at 25 years. Then, for the greater convenience of purchases and the greater profit of the sellers, both the Jubilee and its indulgences were transported from Rome to every marketplace in Christendom. It was no longer necessary to leave one's home. What others had gone in search of beyond the Alps, each man could now buy at his own door. The evil could not become greater. Then the reformer appeared. A little review of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, that which many today would begin to replicate in our own midst among Protestant churches. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of Christ, whereby we were liberated and set free. We acknowledge that we have no greater wisdom than anyone else but only what has been given to us by you through your word. And we thank you for the liberating power of the gospel of Christ. We thank you that his salvation is sufficient to save even wretches such as us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.